This is episode number 39 with Paul Stiglensky from Flying Fur Animal Rescue. Welcome to American Snippets, your source for inspirational, motivational, and selfless stories and interviews from exceptional people across the nation. And now, here's your host, Barb Allen and Dave Brown. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to American Snippets. My name is Dave Brown, real estate investor, lifestyle entrepreneur, coach, and co-host of the American Snippets podcast. Again, our goal each week is to bring you an inspiring story or exceptional person who is living, defending, or promoting the American dream. These are individuals who are giving back both in business and in everyday life. And our guest today, Paul Stiglensky is doing just that. You see, each day in America, thousands of dedicated animal rescue professionals work tirelessly to find homes for lost, abandoned, abused, and desperate animals. Sometimes the difference between life and death for these animals is just a matter of miles. And this is where Paul Stiglensky steps in. Paul is an Army veteran who is on a new mission to transport as many dogs and cats as he can from the high kill shelters in the South to new lives in the North. Since he founded his nonprofit Flying Fur Animal Rescue in 2015, he's personally flown almost 1,000 animals into new lives. And he's just getting started. Now, without further ado, here's Barbara Allen with Paul Stiglensky. Hi there. Welcome to American Snippets. I am your co-host, Barb Allen. And we are here today with somebody who has taken to the skies to follow his passion and his cause. And it is the kind of cause that you just cannot help but get behind. Uh, Some of you that know me know that I spent some time managing a humane society. So I am well-versed in the struggles that are involved with caring for these animals and some of the the dogs uh, that are struggling to find homes and your heart breaks when you see them sitting there and not moving and lingering. And in some places, um, most notably, I think in the South, they have a higher rate of euthanizing animals in the humane societies. And so there are some people that take it upon themselves to caravan animals out from places where they're at a higher risk of being euthanized and, uh, and place them in homes or in with different rescue organizations where they have a greater success rate at being placed. Uh, most people, though, do this by vans. Uh, most people drive down and road trip down and stack up vans with as many animals as they can fit. Today's guest uh, is, a, is a U.S. military veteran, an Army veteran, who has taken it to a whole new level and taken upon himself to fly these animals out of those, these areas with an organization uh, and then start an organization organization to support this effort, uh, flyingfur.org. And today here is Paul Steklensky. Did I say that right? Yes. Steklensky. Yep. My maiden name is Obremsky. So um, I'm, Sorry, I, yeah. I understand. Yes. I'm like, oh, a ski. Okay. So Paul, thank you so much for being here today. Thank thanks, you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we came across your website and I was just instantly captivated. You have some, um, you know, very compelling pictures on there of these animals. You have this one little dog, Leroy, I think, popping out of the carrier. And that one just got me. His face was just, was so great. So tell us a little bit about your organization, flyingfur.org. You founded that in, in 2015. So just about three years ago. Correct. Right. So May will be our third uh, year anniversary. So yeah, Flying Fur was started in May of 2015. Um, sort of born from the adoption of, of one of my own dogs, Tessa. 
and learning about the uh, huge underground network of animal rescue that exists that most people don't even realize is there. And um, so when I, you know, I learned about that uh, through the adoption process and, and trying to find an animal, I was, I was just blown away. I had no idea that this existed and, you know, what people went through to save these animals' lives. So at the time, I was, uh, I had just completed my, my uh, you know, airman certificate pilot's license. So I, I thought, well, this is a perfect way to combine the two because of the efficiency, you know, that an airplane can offer when it comes to the rescue versus the ground-based uh, systems. Yeah. And so I imagine it allows you, do you get calls where things are on an emergent basis, you know, say there's a natural disaster or there's a cruelty seizure and a shelter is just overwhelmed and needs to get animals moved out quickly in order not to euthanize. Does that happen? Sure. So it, for us, for the most part, it's scheduled to the extent that okay. we can. But it's a it's a it's a fluid system. We're getting right. animals out of the kill shelters into right. foster. The sooner we can get them out of foster onto the plane to the rescue, we've now back you know opened up that backfill space to bring in more animals. We oh, haven't so done so much on the national uh, uh, you know natural disaster side yet because it's okay. this is something I do on the side. I still have a full time job. I can only afford to spend so much money and take so much vacation time. So. Oh, well, I'm, I'm like, leave it to me. I'm like, Paul, you know, you really could be doing more. <laughs> I'm sorry about well, trust that. Me, I'm, always not, I'm not looking at what I've done. I'm always looking at where we're going. So, yeah, hopefully yeah. one day uh, today there are some limits. Yeah, but, you know, you brought up an important thing that I was absolutely going to get to. This is not something that you get paid to do. On the contrary, you spend your own money to do this. And you have a, a day job you know, that, that pays your bills and you spend your own money to fly these animals out. That's correct. I spend uh, approximately a thousand dollars a month. Um, I have a payroll deduction that goes right from my my paychecks to the nonprofit. Um, so that you know that offsets the cost of flying, which I have to do legally with the FAA. Um, but yeah, it's my day job that really pays for this, and this is my passion. Um, you know, when I first started doing it for the first two years, we rented airplanes. So the airport that I learned to fly from allowed me to take the rear seats out of their planes, put crates in. And I couldn't go as far then because airplanes were a little smaller, a little slower, um, but we would still get it done. And then in uh, February of 2017, we were able to finally purchase our own airplane. So now we have an airplane dedicated just to animal rescue and allows me to, to go a bit further because it's more efficient, um, it's faster, and it can still carry quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, it's not cheap by any means. And um, you know, part of my future now is to figure out how can I take this to the next level because um, when you are paying so much out of pocket to make it happen, you know, if that changes, so does the the rescue. And right. and uh, it's just not something that I can ever let fail. So you, you always have to find a path to success. And you're largely a one-man show. So you handle all of the social media and all of the contact with the shelters and the direct right. care of the animals and the pickup. Do you also speak with the foster homes, the people who are, are going to take the dogs or... That, that part gets handed off pretty much with the rescues. Okay. I'm very fortunate to um, work with rescues that are very good at what they do, which allows me to do what I do. Um, so it really does take a village. So yes. in conjunction, um, <clears throat> I know yesterday's flight, we had 11 dogs on board, and one actually had an adopter waiting for a senior dog, which I thought was really cool. Nice. Usually they're going in the foster, but there are times that they'll have an adopter waiting because in the background, before the flight's even scheduled, the rescues know what dogs they're they're pulling. They know the background. They know the history. Okay. Um, so they have the opportunity to kind of shop the dog for adoption. And I remember one flight in particular I did where I had 12 dogs on board and there was 12 families waiting. Waiting I, at the airport when you landed? It was phenomenal. It was really that phenomenal. That is great. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise yeah. from the nonprofit perspective, yeah, I do everything myself. It's, it's an efficiency thing, you know, um, because I had to, I mean, for the first two years, I wouldn't even let the nonprofit pay for its PO box or its domain names. It still doesn't pay for its domain names or anything like that. Just because <laughs> you know, when you're nonprofit, you don't know where your next dollar is coming from. So, yeah. um, you're, you're just, you know, the more you can do, you do it. If you can do it, you know, why, why pay somebody to do something I can do myself as long as I'm doing it within the guidelines and the rules. Yeah. And so while you never actively fundraise or solicit donations or anything like that, say we reach some people who did feel like helping out, um, can they find out how to do so through your website? Yes. Through uh, flyingfur.org, we have a donate page. Okay. Uh, it's on GuideStar. The information's a little bit outdated, but uh, obviously fiscal transparency is very important to me. Um, we have to be a, because we're a nonprofit, you know, a 501 C three, but B, um, you know, personally, before I started this, I would donate to different organizations, but you don't know where the money's going, what's happening. And, you know, I have people say, Hey, can I see your financials? I pick up the phone. I call them right away. We have a half hour conversation. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. And I'll show you whatever, you know, because that's the way I believe, right. You, you deserve to see where your money's going. So yeah. Um, on the website, you can donate, uh, in various ways. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, very, very passionate about the fact that I don't take any money out of this and that I actually put money into it so that so that people can really get on board and understand uh, you know what we're doing. Yeah. So uh, have people contacted you? Have you had any other pilots jump in and say, hey, I have a plane. Can I come with you on a trip and pick up? I have some in dogs? a few instances, um, but sometimes, you know, there's it's just give and take and people don't necessarily realize at first on the piloting side, like, guys, I'm paying, I'm, I'm essentially renting the airplane right. nonprofit. Because right. I have to cover that cost out of my pocket to be legal with the FAA right. for good reason. Um, so that kind of turns people away. And they realize, like, guys, I'm not doing this for free. I'm not getting anything out of this. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm this and I'm paying for it. So um, it, it's a little more difficult there um, from that aspect. But, um, yeah, we've had a few people. The neatest ones are when commercial pilots, you know, commercial airline captains and things like that reach out. Um, and they say, hey, you know, can I help at some point or come along? I think that's really neat um, because what they do for their job. But, yet, you know, they love the animal side of it. Yeah, that would be great. So as uh, as I spent a few years managing a, a humane society and still maintain touch with that community, I I don't know if people really understand. So you have people who love animals and care about animals and people who really just couldn't care less and don't understand why we spend so much time and money on them and all that. But for people who are into it and, and maybe want to know more, what it's like to work at a, at a humane society or an animal shelter when you're doing your very, very best to find a home for every animal. And when you know there's an animal that you're just not going to be able to place and you're looking at that, that dog and your phone is ringing constantly with people wanting to surrender their dogs and I need a home for this dog. And sometimes you'll get a call saying, if you don't take this dog today, I'm just going to throw him in the river kind of thing. And so you're actually making life or death decisions every day. And that can be very emotionally taxing on the people who are caring for these animals and doing their best. And a lot of them get kind of a bum rap when, when they're euthanizing these animals and they absolutely don't want to be. So somebody like you must be like a godsend to the people who are you know just desperate to find homes for these people? How do they find you? Do they come to you through the website? Do you I, I, you don't call them up and say, "Hey, here I am." Right? Uh, so I actually started working with the group in a different in a different form um, through a different forum, and then made some connections there. And then I realized, you know, where I happen to live, there's a huge demand for transport to get these animals from the south to the north because of the overpopulation, the kill shelters, things like that. Um, so I started working regularly with a couple of groups 
And now I have some people that reach out direct and I have some, you know, controls in place. You need to be a nonprofit. I, I might want to look at your stuff a little bit to make sure you're legit. All of us spend so much time and money and emotion to make sure that mm-hmm. we do our part for the animal. You want to make sure it's going to a, a good place. So, um, as you said, it is taxing. I am fortunate that because I'm just on the transport side right now, I don't deal with a lot of the, the things that the rescues do and they're very good at what they do. One of our long-term goals um, that's going to require a lot more money is to have a dedicated rescue facility in the area here. There's a lot of private airstrips attached to farms around here that with the right amount of money could be purchased and turned into a a basic intake rehab and adoption center. And then I don't want to have to make those decisions because I'll be like, if this dog doesn't get adopted, guess what? You're staying here. You're going to live here. (laughs) So it's getting to that point, you know, fiscally we don't have that kind of money. We're, we're talking millions of dollars to get to there yes. and I'm just not there yet. So, um, ultimately, yes, that is where I'd like to be and, and figuring out that cost structure and what it's going to take to maintain that never letting the nonprofit get in over its head. These are all, you know, it's a business, but it's a non, it's a nonprofit, but it's still business it has to be run like one. So it's right. very important to me that, that we never fail by, by getting ourselves in too deep or, or getting it in more than we can handle because then, um, you know, that's all for nothing. Yeah. It's all nothing in the animals that we started out to help. We, we've now let down. So it's very important to, to take each step carefully and, and to make sure we do it right. Yeah. So what is one of the stories, one of the dogs or one of the trips that strikes <clears throat> at, strikes you? And I'm sure almost all of them sit with you and you can remember a lot yeah. of the dogs. But are there a couple of different stories that are especially you know, vivid, uh, vivid in your mind? You know, so some extreme cases that you took and do you get to follow up with them afterwards and see where they go and sure yeah so um one of the first ones would have been maximus and he's a dog that you can see on our web page uh he's in the banner of, of photos that, that go by when you first land on our homepage. he was a little brindle uh pitbull pup and he had actually been used as a bait dog down yeah. in the carolinas as a puppy and literally tossed into a cemetery you know left to die in a cemetery and people stumbled across him taking a walk okay Pulled him out, and uh, the vet wanted to say, you know, the vet's like, we should just put him down. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Found a rescue in New York that would take him, and uh, I became part of that transport. I was doing two transports that day. I had uh, gone to Maryland to pick up a dog, drop off in Pennsylvania, and then made a hop over Philadelphia to South Jersey to meet another pilot to take Maximus North. I didn't know anything about him at the time. I just was told he was a medical case. And it wasn't until we landed in New York, uh, in Marstown, that I realized, you know, how bad it was when we opened the door to the crate and he comes out and his, his one paws just barely, you know, barely on, it's all infected. And just the look on his face, you know, it's, um, it, that, that was a very tough one because here's this animal that had been abused, the puppy through no fault of its own had done nothing. And here it is not even, you know, six months, eight months old and it's it's been through hell and it was going to be, it was going to be killed. So that was very difficult. Um, he hit me so hard. I went, a week later after surgery, because he had to be amputated, and I visited him uh, with him in New York and Brooklyn at the uh, Best Friends, I think it's Best Friends Animal Hospital, uh, Faithful Friends. Okay. And, uh, and I spent a couple hours with him there, and uh, something about him, you know, just really, really hooked on me. And this is one of the first times I can actually talk about this, by the way, where I'm not actually getting super emotional. So it's it's difficult to talk about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but he actually ended up getting adopted about 45 minutes from me, so I've been able to visit with him twice now. Oh, that is great. He's in a family with another uh, dog that's got only three legs as well. So the the family already had experience with, you know, a dog with those kind of needs. So, yeah, those, I mean, the the, the abuse cases are probably the worst. They're the ones that you, 
not only remember, but when somebody asks you about them, it's like everything just comes flashing back again. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how many years go by, uh, you can huh. still picture. I have some of the animals in my head that I will never get out of my head because I have a cat jumping up on me here. But <laughs> so it's very just, I'm sorry. He literally it's, just jumped up and stabbed me in the back. <laughs> it's permanently, uh, kind of permanently, you know. Uh, burned yeah. into your brain, right? Some of these yeah, cases. Yeah, I can remember some of the ones that did not have happy endings and the frustration that I felt. And I felt like I, and I had failed them. I mean, the, I actually had, whether or not it was my fault or I had done all I could, I was their last hope and I didn't come through for them. So, you know, technically yep. I did fail them. And that feeling is just something I would have been, you know, every once in a while we had, we would have somebody contact us. Uh, and say, you know, we pull dogs to do X, Y, and Z. Do you have any dogs that have these personalities or these temperament traits? And I would say, oh, please, yes, come, you know. And I mean, we would check the people out and make sure. But yes. when you know that the dog is coming from the shelter and you're like, oh, there's one more. And you can kind of just relax and breathe for just for a nanosecond because you turn around yes. and there's, you know, 12 more waiting to come in. But it is such a it just to know that you're not alone in it either and that you have resources and allies. It's it's huge. So what you do really makes a tremendous... How many dogs have you transported in the three years that you've been doing this? We are just under a thousand now. Uh, I haven't updated our website with yesterday's flight. Um, but yeah, we're getting close. My goal is to hit a thousand before we turn three years old. So we're just under a thousand now of animals that I've helped transport uh, between dogs and cats. Wow. And so where are your primary... Where's your primary range? Uh, a normal a normal trip for us is down to the Raleigh area, North okay. Carolina, Wilson, and then um, back up to, say, uh, the Mount Holly, New Jersey area, Westchester area of New York, and towards, say, Morristown. Sometimes we go a little further, Connecticut, Vermont. just depends on the uh, on where the animal's coming from and going to. But that's a very typical flight for us. That's a pretty common corridor that I go up and down. What, what are the hours involved in that day? You get up and are, are they generally morning flights or i mean that's a long day yesterday was a half a day now it was worse when i rented because the airport that i rented from was an hour from here so i'd have to load my pickup truck with all of the crates drive an hour <laughs> to get to the airplane get yeah. the airplane ready and then so they they were even longer days um but right now say yesterday i left the airport took off around 12 30 um and i got back to the airport after making one stop down to north carolina one stop in new jersey and back to pa i think i was putting the airplane away by six o'clock so a typical day is closer to eight to 10 hours, depending on how many stops I'm making and things like that. It's, it's the starts and stops that take the time. When you're in cruise flight, it goes a bit faster. But yeah, it does. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a long day. And that's what you do on your day off. Well, I took a half a day off yesterday to do it. So I use vacation time. Normally, we try to fly every other Sunday because I can afford to, to roughly fly about twice a month, give or take. Okay. Um, but sometimes we make an exception based on you know, the need. Um, but yeah, usually on a Sunday, I watch my father on Fridays and Saturdays. So I, I really can't do a Friday night or a Saturday because I help take oh. care of him. So Sunday is like pretty much the, the day we, we trigger for. And then when I commit to a rescue, to a flight, I commit and I'll say, look, if I'm doing this, I'm doing it. Then I'll, I'll find the next available day I can take off of work or a half day and we'll get it done then. So if there are weather issues that preclude you from flying, you'll go the next day generally. Correct. Yeah. We'll go the next available day that we can get it done. Yep. As we did this week, um, we didn't expect to have another request so soon for this many animals, but yesterday was as near perfect. Other than the winds, I'm actually having the mechanic check the airplane now because I said, boy, I came down pretty hard on that left main when I came back and I got kicked sideways by a gust. Um, <laughs> so the weather is, is really the driving factor for safety. 
Yeah, I would imagine. And to, I'm sorry, you can see. So we do have dogs, but this is a cat here who is just very <laughs> insistent. He was Pretty a rescue. He was a rescue as well. And he's literally jumping right up onto the screen. He loves me. He's my buddy here at work. Um, he just jumped right up there. Um, so what are some things, I mean, what, I know you said that your dog, your own rescue dog inspired you to start this Tessa. Yes. But a lot of people, and this is what we talk about a lot here at American Snippets. You know, we go beyond, obviously, we lean heavily towards the military. My background is military. as a gold star wife. And my community is is military. I did professional work uh, with that community. But we also emphasize that every single person here has the ability. You don't have to wear a uniform and serve, although you did. So we thank you for that as well. Um, but even people that come out of service, there's always something that you can do within your own reach to give back or to enhance the world. Or I, I don't know of any single person who doesn't look around the world or their town or the community and be like, oh, I really can't stand that this happens or that happens. But the majority of people leave it at that, complaining about it or pointing it out. And maybe some people will put a bumper sticker on the car or throw some change in a can or something. So I think it's the the minority of the population that takes it that step further and puts their, you know, their concern or their passion into action and even not so many, maybe as deeply as you, investing your own money into it. So beyond the dog, I mean, what is it? Did you did you just always love animals or was it this one particular? Was it like a, a moment of insight? Like, this is what I'm going to do. It's funny because I get this question from time to time and I can look back now yeah. to the way things fell into place starting around 2009. And I can 100% tell you right now, I did not choose this path. It was chosen for me. I just had to keep going down it. Um, it's literally that simple. When I look at how I left my employer for six months to go to another one, and every day I would pass the airport, and I decided to start taking flying lessons, to then going back and kind of getting in on my own terms and, and, and having a little more flexibility with vacation, things like that, everything put together made me realize that this path was literally being laid out in front of me, and I just had to follow it. You know, my uncle's a pilot back in the in the 30s and 40s, my mom gave me her his logbooks a long time ago. So it it was just phenomenal. And then, you know, adopting Tessa while I was about halfway through my, my training and then understanding what what this huge craziness going on with animal rescues that most people don't even know about. So it you know, I one of my favorite quotes is Arthur Ashe, a famous tennis player, you know, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. And it's just that simple. Anybody, anywhere yes. in any position can do that. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or have a little you can still make an impact. And I think this is a very small impact. I and mean, there's millions of animals that are put down every year, but it's something. Yeah. As long as I can do something, I'll continue to do it. Yeah. I have a, a very close friend who has for over 20 years run her own equine rescue uh, with the same things. And she puts it in the same way too. She says, you know, everybody can just tidy up their own corner of the world. And I love that. It's the same, it's, it's the same thing. But I think it's also when people look at it like that, they're often the people that wind up doing the most and having having the greatest impact. So do people ever come to you and ask you, Paul, you know, I see what you do. How did you go about it? You know, I would like to do something like that, but I can't and give you all the reasons why they can't do it or they're afraid to do it. And what is your advice to them? You know, don't let anything stop you. I had more people tell me that I couldn't do this when I started than told me that I could. You know, I had people in similar scenarios like this 
you know, there's always going to be people that don't want you to succeed for some reason or another. Yeah. Um, and then there's always going to be regulatory challenges. There's, there's always going to be some sort of challenge. That's life. That doesn't mean that you stop, right? You right. find a way around it. And that's what I did. Every challenge that I hit, I found a way to get around it, to get over it. You just, it, it's, you know, maybe it ties into the military. I don't know. Right. You just don't give up. You keep trying. And uh, just be, the advice I would say, you know, the best advice is be, um, be sensible, be logical, be real about what you're trying to do. You know, um, talk to people that you trust. Just don't get in over your head. Make sure it's something you can do. And, you know, when I started, as I said, well, if nobody ever donates a dollar, can I make this happen? And I'm like, as long as I have a paycheck, I can make this happen. Yeah. And that was basically my mantra from day one. So, yeah, don't give up. Don't let other people tell you what you can or cannot do, because too many people in this world live by other people's other people's ideas or, or what they consider as their rules. And, and that's just not how it should be. You know, set yourself free, follow your passion. And if you really believe in it and you, and you know, you're passionate about it, you'll find a way to make it happen. Nice. Um, now does Tessa ever get jealous? Does she smell the other dogs and grill you? Do you, you just know, they, take her for a ride every now and then? <laughs> they were outside and they came down on my, my sweat jacket from yesterday. It's, it smells like hydraulic <laughs> oil from the airplane. It smells like the 11 other dogs I was with. Um, so I think she gets more jealous of, jealous of Kayla sometimes, uh, who's our second adopted dog. Um, oh. she we actually adopted her off of a rescue flight two years ago. It was right on our independence day, happened to be her independence day flight oh. and, uh, went back the next day, filled out the paperwork and brought her home. So depending if she's getting a little bit too much attention, Tessa will come up and, and kind of want some attention, but you're um, not supposed to bring them home. You're supposed to keep that, <laughs> keep that riffraff out there. <laughs> I don't think they judge me. I think dogs, if anybody understands, you know, uh, what you're doing and, uh, yeah. and uh, don't have a problem with it. But no, I, I'd say they're both pretty good about it. <laughs> That's good to her. That's good to her. I have a bunch of dogs too. And sometimes they're okay when, when, you yep. know, when you cheat on them and sometimes they're not, but you always got to make it up to them. Um, so back to American snippets here and what we do, we talked a little bit about you know how we focus on the military and how giving back. Um, we talk a lot about the American dream and what it means to people. And you did serve in the military. Now you are, you have a quote regular day job, but you're also following your passion. So, um, do you think about the American dream in any particular term? Some people don't think about it at all, but when asked, you, like, what does the American dream mean to you? You know, it's, it's probably being able to do, to follow your passion and see it through. I mean, the one thing I tell people all the time is money doesn't drive me. It never has. Uh, it never will. Uh, but I need money to do what I do. Right. So for me, one of the struggles to, to overcome is to figure out how can I find ways to make money that I can feel good about to further the rescue. So yeah, I mean, if you're passionate about it, and, uh, and, and compassion is the best thing you can have, that's the best fuel you can have the best, the best, uh, the best everything inspiration, you know, to get it done. So yeah, I mean, obviously, you in this country, we have more freedoms than anywhere. I mean, when, especially when it comes to aviation as a pilot, you know, it's we, we complain about everything. And yet we, we tend to forget um, all of the things that we have here. And uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely, you know, it's if it's nothing more is proof, proof positive is the amount of people that immigrate to this country and then go on to become hugely successful because they have opportunities here that we take for granted because we happen to be born on the soil. So yeah. Um, the best thing you can do is constantly remind yourself how, just how lucky you are in this country. Good. So if there was somebody that you could pick up the phone today and give them a call and meet anybody in the world that you could spend an afternoon with, who would that be? Somebody you'd really love to meet? That's probably a tough question because three of my kind of favorite uh, people that I look up to um, 
two are fairly well known. James Dyson, right? I mean, the Dyson vacuum cleaner. He never gave up. <laughs> Ramsey, uh, because he's just extremely, you know, he's extremely passionate about what he does. Huh. And a gentleman by the name of Dean Kamen, who started DECA Engineering, um, who has invented a lot of medical devices over the years that have uh, really helped humans. Uh, so That's a diverse are, range. It is, but uh, it's three of the people that come to my mind that have been inspirational you know, to me over the years. Is it because they've just pursued what they're all about and found they've success and pursued? They've made an impact and they've changed the world. I mean, okay. James Dyson went up against some of the biggest vacuum cleaner companies out there that tried to shut him down and look where he is today. Gordon Ramsay, he's, he's known success and failure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Dean Kamen, you know, some of the things he's invented are just mind blowing that, you know, have helped people with, uh, with a lot of various medical conditions and just the human race. It's, uh, these are really inspirational people to me. All right. We'll put them on the party list when we uh, celebrate your fifth anniversary or something. <laughs> so I want to thank you again for taking the time to be here. I know you have such a jammed schedule and we were kind of touch and go over the months as we tried to coordinate this. So I appreciate you following through on this. And we did talk about your website, but let's say it one more time. Let's just run it by one more time. Tell people where they can find you uh, online and contact you to maybe get involved or see what they can do to help. So it's flyingfur.org, and you can follow us on Facebook as Flying for Animal Rescue and on Instagram as uh, Flying for Animal Rescue. I mean, that's where you're going to see the most updates. The website's a little static. We're getting ready to redo it. But uh, if you want to see the day-to-day stuff, uh, definitely Facebook and Instagram, and you'll, you'll get your daily dose of animal rescue there for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Hope you uh, enjoyed the show. Uh, if you did, be sure to share this with a friend or on social media. Make sure you tag us at American Snippets. Also, don't forget to visit our website to see the full story, video, and more on the Flying Fur Animal Rescue. You can do that at americansnippets.com forward slash 039. Also, don't forget to join the movement and connect with us on Facebook as well. We publish daily inspirational content throughout the day at facebook.com forward slash American Snippets. Uh, one last thing, uh, today's episode is brought to you by Real Estate Worldwide. Uh, real estate investing is one of the fastest and lucrative ways to achieve the American dream, uh, but the key is having the right blueprint to follow, and that's where Real Estate Worldwide comes in. Uh, the founder of this organization, Kent Clothier, uh, is not only a good friend, but he's a mentor. Uh, he has a top-ranked education and software company, uh, and his company's systems and trainings have played a huge role in my success as a real estate investor, and if you're interested in real estate investing, it could play a huge role in your success as well. The REWW Academy is hands down the premier real estate investing learning system. And Kent and I have put together a very special training for you uh, that you can learn all about this system and how you can get started in real estate investing yourself. So if you want to learn more, uh, just head on over to americansnippets.com forward slash R-E-W-W. Uh, again, we are looking to spread our message of positivity, possibility, and patriotism across this country. So please support us in this mission by subscribing on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review. Tell a friend what we're doing. Help us get the word out because the more subscribers, listeners, and reviews we get, the more exposure we can provide for our stories and the guests that we have on the show. Finally, don't just be inspired or entertained by our guests. Let their stories ignite you into action in your own life. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. We'll see you next time.